Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 96, and it's the first in a two-part series on the European reaction to the threat of the Ottoman Turks, specifically the siege of Rhodes and how England reacted to it. But first, I need to thank my patrons who help to keep this show independent. I have amazing patrons. Thank you to Elizabeth, Kathy, Jurgen, that's my dad, Olivia, Al, Ashley, Kendra, Lady Anne, Jessica, Judith, Cynthia, Heather, great name, Selene, Lara, Candice, Ian, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Andrea, Catherine, Rebecca, and Shandor. I love you guys. You're awesome. To find out how you can join this exclusive list of amazing people, head on over to englandcast.com and click on the donate and support button at the top menu. You can support the show for as little as a dollar an episode, and there are rewards available. Or if you want to support the show in another way, you can always head on over to tutorfair.com, which is my online shop filled with all kinds of great Tudor goodness, like pendants featuring quotes from Henry VIII's love letters to Anne Boleyn, or leggings covered with portraits of amazing Tudor women. There's also a collection of items that are perfect for Women's History Month, like the Future Has Always Been Female t-shirts with an original Elizabeth I sketch. So you can check it out at tutorfair.com. So recently, while doing some reading, I came across a letter by Sir Nicholas Roberts, that described meeting the Ottoman Emperor Suleiman the Magnificent as the Siege of Rhodes was ending. Nicholas Roberts was one of the Knights Hospitalier, also known as the Sovereign Order of St. John of Jerusalem. He was stationed in the Mediterranean. These knights were a holdout from the Crusader period. They formed in the 11th century. They were a last bastion of Christian power on a rocky island in the sea. So they had been a crusading order, and they kept up their presence, they harassed Ottoman ships, and they were essentially becoming pirates who preyed on Turkish boats. And they had spent the last couple of centuries hanging on to this glorious crusader past, providing hospitality to passersby and tending to wounded and the sick, 
and they kept hope alive in Rome and Christendom for a crusading future. I became interested by the English knights who were stationed at Rhodes. They lived far from home and court in the middle of the sea, pirating and crusading against the invading Ottoman Turks. And I began reading a little bit more about it. The 16th century was a period when it seemed as if the rise of the Muslim faith with the Ottoman Empire was unstoppable. Whereas at the end of the 15th century, the Reconquista in Spain had given new hope to Christendom, by the middle of the 16th century, things were looking very different indeed. The Barbary pirates were harassing Spanish forts, taking prisoners from the coast. Tens of thousands of Christian prisoners were taken in the coast in the area from Barcelona to Valencia in just the span of a few years. Shipping routes through the sea were constantly under threat, and it seemed that these great victories in Spain from the previous century were all but forgotten. In Europe, the Reformation meant that instead of one unified Christendom, Protestants suddenly had to be persuaded to fight with the Pope. There was a diagonal line stretching from Austria down to Gibraltar that was under constant threat, and for a while it seemed as if Europe was unable to do anything about it. It all culminated in the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, the largest naval battle ever waged, bringing together a holy league, including England, though not without some consideration on England's part, and beating back the Ottoman threat. I wanted to look at the Ottoman Empire during this time period and how England dealt with the threat. They were physically removed enough to not have a direct threat to their own territory, but at the same time, they did send knights and warriors to support the activities against the Turks. In the 1520s, Henry VIII was still the golden child of the Pope, so he was very active in trying to support the Christians in the Mediterranean. It's also important to remember that, as Ian Colliard wrote, quote, direct Ottoman influence on England was limited, but the Ottomans characterized European affairs. The Ottoman invasions of Eastern Europe, control over the Mediterranean Sea, and the Franco-Ottoman alliance shifted priorities in Europe from keeping England Catholic to the more dangerous threat. The consequences of the Ottoman aspirations in Europe in part helped Henry VIII to secure the English Reformation, unquote. So basically what he's saying is that Charles V and the other European countries were under a lot more threat from the Ottomans, and so Charles did not wage a war against Henry to save the dignity of his aunt when Henry was trying to put Catherine aside. Nobody invaded England to try to keep England Catholic, whereas they might have had the Ottoman threat not been there. So this episode, I'm going to talk about the Siege of Rhodes in 1522. And then next time, I'm going to move on to the years leading up to Lepanto 50 years later. So I'm going to tell you up front how the Siege of Rhodes ended, so you aren't in suspense the entire time. Then I'll tell you what happened and what led to it. So the Ottoman Turks won. It was the bloodiest siege ever. They were using bombardments of human body parts. They were sending heads over the walls. It was horrible. The Christians had to leave the island, but when they negotiated their surrender, they were allowed to keep their lives, which was really unusual for the time period for any kind of a siege 
especially one with the Ottomans. Suleiman the Magnificent had a huge amount of respect for the knights who fought there. It was amazing that they were able to keep this siege going for six months. The siege and the attempts of the knights to stave off the Turks played a huge part in the European psyche for decades. In the 1650s, 130 years later, the very beginnings of English opera were born in a production called The Siege of Rhodes. It was the first time a woman was ever on stage, and the famous Henry Purcell's father played a role too. So the point is, Rhodes was part of the English psyche for decades. So what is Rhodes? Rhodes is a small Greek island, which was the headquarters of the Knights of St. John, and it had been since the Crusades. The Knights were divided into different nationality groups. It included Provence, France, Germany, England, Aragon, and Castile, among others. It shifted based on who had what territory at the time period. That was the general group. They built about 30 castles on the island, There were walls that were four kilometers long with a moat. During any attack, each nationality took over a section of the wall to defend. The English had a large presence within the order. In the 1140s, the order was set up in England with a headquarters in Clerkenwell. So they were very prominent in Rhodes. The island was first attacked by the Turks in 1480. They were under siege and it was unsuccessful. Over the next decades, the knights improved their defenses, they doubled the size of their ditch, and they thickened the walls. And it should be noted that the knights used Muslim slaves for much of their labor. And so the loyalty of the slaves was something that would affect the siege in 1522. Muslim slaves were able to escape and cross over to Suleiman's line and give all kinds of information about the location of the defenses, where the weak points were, everything like that. So slavery played a big part in what happened with the siege. In 1521, the knights had elected a new leader called a grandmaster, Philippe Liladam. He was expecting an attack, and so he chained off the harbor. He wrote frantic letters to European leaders asking for help and reinforcements, and few came, though a group of Venetian warriors from Crete and also a contingent from Ireland had arrived. The siege itself lasted for six months, and it was unusual because Suleiman the Magnificent himself showed up. So that meant that he was coming either for victory or for death. There was not going to be any option to give up this siege. With Suleiman there, with the Sultan there, his commanders had no choice. They were either going to win this or they were going to die trying. And there were countless attacks. There were tunnels drilled underneath or, or dug underneath. Um, the heaviest fighting was actually in the English quarter. Most of the English members of the order lost their lives. There were some major assaults on the city. The English portion of the wall actually fell. And there were dozens of tunnels that went underneath. So it was basically like playing whack-a-mole where they would have a tunnel and then they would realize there would be some fighting and then they would try to seal it off really quick or put extra defenses All the time, the people in Rhodes, and there were civilians too, it wasn't just the knights, there were Christian civilians there too. They were unable to get any food. And like I said, it's kind of one of the things 
that Rhodes is famous for when you, when you start researching it is the, just how barbaric some of this was with human heads coming over the walls. So it was not a pleasant experience to be under siege in Rhodes as a knight or as a civilian at this time period. The walls literally had holes in them every day. They were uncertain whether that was going to be the day that they were going to lose their city. And of course, if they had lost, they would lose not just their lives, but the civilians would be sold into slavery. The women would be separated from the men. The churches would be destroyed. The town would be sacked. People would be raped and killed. It would all be really horrible. So they were under th- under siege for six months living like this. Now, they kept hoping for supplies to come and none came. And the wall looked like Swiss cheese with so many holes in it. And yet they still managed to resist. Finally, the Turks, who were also dealing with disease in their camps and demoralized troops, you know, that would have been very demoralizing for them that they were unable to conquer this city that was just there that didn't have any reinforcements coming. They had hundreds of thousands of troops there. And Suleiman just kept throwing them at the wall, literally just everybody was replaceable. Just try again, try again, try again. And they were unable to do it. They were very demoralized. And Suleiman offered a peace to the citizens. He couldn't be seen to be doing it himself. So he did it through intermediaries. And he wanted to try to save face as much as possible. So they would be allowed to keep their lives and their food. Whereas, of course, if they died in a battle, the town would be sacked, they would be sold as slaves. So on the 22nd of December, six months into the siege, the representatives of the city's Latin and Greek areas accepted the terms of the surrender. And the knights were given 12 days to leave. They would be allowed to take with them their weapons and any valuables or religious icons that they wanted to take with them. Suleiman also promised that no churches would be desecrated or turned into a mosque. Any civilian could leave if they wanted to do so. And those who remained wouldn't have to pay any kind of tribute to the Ottomans for five years. It was an incredibly generous offer. And it showed just how bad the situation was for Suleiman that he was unable to capture this city. On the 1st of January, 1523, the knights and the soldiers marched out of the town. They kept their banners flying and the drums were beating and they walked out wearing their full battle armor. There had actually been a lot of discussion as to whether they would accept the truce or not. Apparently, the Grand Master Liladam wanted to go down fighting, but the civilians in the town begged him to accept the truce because, of course, it wasn't going to be pretty for them if they lost. And so he gave in to them. But they had fought with such valor and had been so strong that there's actually a story that Suleiman kind of took off his turban in respect for Liladam when the two met. They had 50 ships made available to them, and they sailed to Crete, which was a Venetian possession at the time, and several thousand civilians went with them. The knights were kind of homeless for a little while, 
until they found a new base, which Charles V, Emperor Charles, gave them Malta as a new base. But they actually went to England and asked Henry VIII, Lila Dom went and asked Henry VIII for some land to have as a new base and some support. And Henry VIII gave Lila Dom some guns, and that was going to be his show of support. But he didn't actually give them any land or anything particularly useful. He just gave them some guns. But he at least saw Lila Dom and tried to show support. So Charles V then gives them Malta to have as their new location. And there would be another siege later in Malta that we'll talk about. So we know a great deal about what was going on in the English quarter at Rhodes because of letters from Sir Nicholas Roberts. Towards the end, when the town was considering surrendering, he wrote, Though we saw precisely that the town was lost, we would never give over an asperance of suckers. At such time, we saw that there came none, and considering the most part of our men were slain, and that we had no powder, nor no manner of ammunition or victuals, but alone bread and water, we were as men desperate and determined to die upon them in the field rather than to be put upon the stakes, for we thought not that he would give us our lives, considering that there were slain so many of his men. And in the mean season, they came to Parliament with us and did ask us whether we would make any partido and said that the Grand Turk was content that if we would give him the walls of the town, he would give us our lives and our goods. Nicholas Roberts was one of the English representatives sent to Suleiman to negotiate the treaty, and he described meeting the Grand Sultan for the first time in a letter back to the Earl of Surrey. He was the first Englishman to ever record meeting with a sultan. He described seeing him in an empty red pavilion seated on a chair of gold. Even in the midst of a siege, Suleiman the Magnificent had to remain magnificent in a private tent with a throne of solid gold. You can't beat that. The thing that's so interesting about this to me, as with so much in history, is that the rise of the Ottoman threat in the Mediterranean directly correlates with the timing of the Reformation. So we see this fractured Christendom trying to deal with the threat of the invading Turks. And that's what I'm going to talk about more in the next episode leading up to Lepanto. At this point in 1522, Christendom was still pretty united. It had only been five years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses. England hadn't broken away yet. It was still a fairly united Christendom. But as the decades would go on, as the Turks would go stronger, Europe became much more fractured in how they dealt with the Turkish threat. And putting together a holy league to fight against the Turks in the Mediterranean when the Pope called for it should have been a no-brainer. It should have been really easy. And yet it was actually very difficult and took a lot of negotiation to get all of Europe to come together to fight against this threat. At the same time, the Turks were able to capture Belgrade, and they would go on to besiege Vienna. And a few years later, Henry, of course, would find himself on the opposite side of papal authority when he ran into the issue of the annulment with his wife, Catherine. And even though Catherine was the aunt of the emperor, the emperor did nothing because his territories all over Europe were under threat from the Ottomans. He probably would have loved to have sent an invading army to England and captured England and restored the dignity of his aunt. 
And yet he was unable to do that because he couldn't spare any ships because he had all of this going on with his territories from Vienna down to Gibraltar. In 1536, France actually started working on a trade agreement with the Ottomans, so this made it even more difficult for him, which would have been more of a threat to England. But actually, at that point, Henry and Francis were at peace, so it wasn't so much of a threat. But it's amazing to think that even France was working out some kind of an agreement with the Ottomans. It was that much of a presence in European society. And it's something that I don't think we really ever hear that much about when we're looking at Tudor history and and what was going on. And I think it's because England itself was directly not under any kind of threat. And yet it was such a huge part of what was going on in Europe at the time that it's important to still have an awareness of it. Henry would go on to dissolve the Knights of St. John and take their land when he dissolved the monasteries. And at that point, some of the Knights left and went to places that were Catholic And some of them kind of put up a little bit of a fight. One of them actually died on the day. He apparently had had some kind of a seizure when he heard the news. So there was a, a mixed reaction to what happened as Henry took their land. Like with any kind of monastery or um, order, they did see a revival under Mary I, but that wouldn't last under Elizabeth, of course. Tensions with the Ottoman Empire would rise during the 16th century. And like I said, it would end in the largest naval battle ever fought with the Holy League fighting the Battle of Apanto in 1571. This would ally Protestant England with the Pope and the Spanish in battle to decide the fate of Christendom. And its roots were in the early 16th century with the Knights of St. John. So there we have it. Links for everything with the books I'm using, everything like that are at englandcast.com. Remember to check out tutorfair.com also for all the cool tutor themed products and merchandise. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line, which is 8016 Tesco, or through Twitter at Tesco, that's T-E-Y-S-K-O, or facebook.com slash Englandcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will be back in two weeks to talk about the Battle of Lepanto, the largest naval battle ever fought in the world. So that's going to be cool. All right. I hope you enjoyed this and I will talk with you again soon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoorde boord in Bauerbrieg, dat soel is Sam Lee's on Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.